Hello there and welcome to the Bitcoin Takeover podcast. This is still season 12 and I have a very special guest today. Her name is Lisa Nygut and she works at Blockstream on some lightning stuff which is super interesting. She's also interested in privacy, on-chain and lightning privacy. And she also is very funny on Twitter and I'm going to ask her about some of the stuff that she posted. And she's also doing a conference which takes place in Mexico City and she's going to tell us about that too. So hi Lisa. Hey Vlad, thanks for having me on. It's good to see you. Well, this is going to be fun. You're usually full of energy and enthusiastic. And you work at Blockstream. And Blockstream developed Sea Lightning, which was rebranded as Core Lightning, I guess, because you changed the main programming language. I mean, diversified from it. And there's more That's stuff me. going on. Yeah. So I have a very specific question to begin the interview. I have this... Raspi Blitz, which is a Raspberry Pi, which runs a node. And I'm going to upgrade it and I'm going to make some changes and give it another try. This one has been running for almost two years and I'm going to change the board and some other stuff and do it on video. So if you're listening to this, subscribe to YouTube so you get to see the video that I do. And I get this choice when I install Raspi Blitz on this device. I can either do LND or I can do Sea Lightning or Core Lightning. And I, I need your advice. Of course, you're going to be biased here, but you tell me what I'm going to do with this one. Yeah, I mean, of course, I would recommend that you run Core Lightning. First, first and foremost, that if you ever have any questions, you you know, you have, an, you have a reason to come talk to me or one of my colleagues who work on Core Lightning. We're a super fun group. Um, the other things, that, I mean, you know, it's one of those things where people are always like asking me, what's the difference? Which one would I prefer to run? I don't really know a lot about how LND works or what features it offers, um, but I can I'm more than happy to say about all the great stuff that we've got on Core Lightning that I'm excited about. Um, I think like Core Lightning stuff that I am really proud of and that I like, um, we just shipped some really cool bookkeeping, like accounting so you can get really detailed reports on where you're spending your money and where your money's going um hoping that more dashboards will get built around that yet but um i think having a really, really good idea of where every millisat goes is um pretty novel for lightning nodes and something you get out of the box for free with core lightning on our latest you have to be on dot 12 or later um, to get it, but so that's really cool. So if you're starting up a new node, Core Lightning will give you really good details about where your where your money is going. Um, some other things that I really think about are cool about Core Lightning is our plugin system. So it's kind of like you can run all these extra apps on your Core Lightning node. Um, one of those that some people seem to really like is like CL Boss, which will open channels and do loopouts and get your. If you put money on your node, CL Boss will automatically create channels and make it such that you are always relatively always able to send and receive payments. Um, and when you couple this with like the new bookkeeping data, it gives you a really good idea of like how much it's costing to run CL boss and like kind of, um, yeah, I don't know, makes it running a node. If you just want to have a node that like has money available a lot easier. So yeah, that plus like, there's this really cool thing that someone started building called clams dot, uh, I think it's clams dot 
Oh, I don't know, but we've got this totally new thing called Commando. Have you heard about like the Commando thing? Is really really cool. Basically, oh yeah, the 1985 that, like, movie with I think Arnold Schwarzenegger. <laughs> Commando. Yeah, exactly. So we we called up Schwarzenegger, and he made this new protocol for core lightning. Um, uh, that basically lets you talk lightning protocol between like a web app or an iOS phone. Um, uh, there's this like Anyway, so there's projects that are not using this. And so you can use the system. Core Lightning has this like permission token system called Runes. A similar version of it that exists for LND is called Macaroons. I really like telling the story because I think it's kind of funny about the difference between Macaroons and Runes. Um, should I go into it or I can keep talking about what I like about Core Lightning? Um, the... No, I'll keep talking. This is fun. Okay, yeah. So, so. So part of Commando, so Commando is this like ability to, for your, your browser basically pretends it's another lightning node and it connects to your lightning node wherever it is in the world. So you need to have like your connection string information and then you need like this like auth token, which is basically a room, you need a room. So you have to get a room from your node to put into the like website. It wants to talk to your node because that gives it permission to like access stuff. Um, but basically your web browser pretends to be another lightning node on the network and it makes a secure connection using, I think it's bolt eight. That is the description of like secure socket connection. So any two lightning nodes, when they talk to each other, they make a secure communication channel and then they send information about payments or opening a channel over the secure system, the secure socket, like connection. Um, your browser can pretend to be a node though and securely communicate with your lightning node wherever it is in the world. So you can make like um, distant connections between your node and whatever browser you want to like access it from, or maybe a web app or, or a iOS app. Um, yeah. And so our runes and this like, um, this like commando thing make that all possible. Um, and someone's built a web app on top of it called Clams, um, which right now it just lets you like send and receive payments from the browser. Um, but I'm assuming they'll add more stuff to it. So I'm really excited about that. Um, but let me go back to this idea about runes versus macaroons. Okay, so macaroons are a Google technology. Google like wrote this whole paper about how to make these cool. Like, so basically, you make a token, and the token like maybe says gives you access to like any to make any call on your node that's like read only. But then it, they made it so you can like take that token and add more restrictions to it. So maybe it's only valid for like the next six hours or something, and then give that macaroon to someone else and they can use it, but only for the next six hours or something, right? So it kind of has this cool thing where you have like a base token and then you can restrict more, you can add more restrictions onto it. At least that's my understanding. And then you can like pass them down. So you kind of have this like weird tree of like authentication based off of like one permission that you can then hand out to more people or whatever. Anyways, but macaroon is kind of like a joke. So the macaroon joke is like macaroons or macarons, as they say in France or whatever, um, or cookies, right? They're like little like baked goods. Um, so in on the internet, the earliest like authentication or session things were cookies, right? So you call them cookies. Your web browser will have cookies on it. And when you it gets stored in your browser and when you go to a web page, it sends the cookies to the browse to the page. And then depending on what cookies you have, those are the permissions you currently have. So macaroons are a type of cookie. So it's like an 
improvement on a cookie type. So it's a particular type of cookie. And they called it macaroons because part of the protocol of how you build these like macaroon tokens is you use this like thing called Max, which is like a crypto like authentication scheme thing. So they have Max, right? Okay. So Rusty read the paper that Rusty Russell's one of my coworkers, very brilliant software dev who's been in the business for longer than anyone else in Lightning, I think. Um, also he the read best the Twitter account for trolling. Yeah, he's great on Twitter. It's Rusty underscore twits if you want to go look him up. Um, so he read this macaroons paper and he was like, okay, I like this scheme, but I think we can make it better. We can get rid of the Macs. This Mac part that they added is unnecessary. So he took the Mac off macaroons. And what you end up when you get rid of Mac on a macaroon is just the word rune. So he calls it runes. That's where the name runes come from. It's, it's Rusty's improvement to the macaroons scheme. Um, and so they're very, it's similar, but like clearly they don't interoperate. So they're different that way, but it doesn't really matter as long as you're able to like, I mean, from a, like from a, um, from a web, like if you're building a web app perspective, all you care about is like, you need a little string thing that you send in the call and that will let you just send it to my, your node and the node gets it with a string thing. And either the string thing that you've sent is like correct and lets you get access or it's incorrect and it sends back an error. But like your web app doesn't really care what it is, if it's a rune or a macaroon or whatever. So I think it's totally fine if they're like different standard things sort of, I don't know, anyways. Um, yeah, so that's like the macaroon web app stuff. I think that's really cool. It's still, I think, pretty new. Um, so I think there's like, I think it's definitely gonna be, I hope there's more apps and stuff that people are building. like. This clams project. I'll have to send you the, the URL later. Um, I'm really excited about it. One because it's really well, it's very pretty. Like they have this nice little like logo loading logo. Um, but I think it it's really exciting because it'll let me um I'm hoping someone builds really nice accounting dashboards using all this accounting data that your node is now getting. So you can see a picture of like um see really nice pictures of where you're losing money and where you're earning it and what your profit loss is. And hopefully having all that data will make people running core lightning nodes like much better um, at where they put their money and having a better understanding of what's costing them money is the whole idea. So yeah. Anyways, that was a lot. I'm sorry. I hope did that I don't know if that helps you make your decision. I feel like now you need to go talk to someone uh, who can tell you. Let me stuff. get back to my decision because this okay. is kind of a bummer. Because you have some very cool apps for Core Lightning, but yeah. the ones that are for podcasters like Sphinx and Fountain and the ones that enable you to monetize your content mm -hmm. are integrated with LND for some reason, but are not ported to Core Lightning. So if there's anything oh. you can do to propose that, I would very much appreciate it. Because as far as I know, Core Lightning is a lot more stable. And let me segue into something else which has happened in the last couple of weeks. At first, there was someone who did a huge multi-sig. I think it was 99 out of 100 setup or no, something. No, it was, it was worse than that. It was 998 out of 999 signatures. So in order to spend, so someone took some Bitcoin, locked it up to a 998 out of 999 threshold signature, which meant they needed 998 signatures in order to spend it, right? And then so locked the money up to it and then they produced a transaction that would spend it so they had a transaction that had 998 signatures on it in the witness data um which is very large that's a very large transaction i think 
This is Barack, right? Barack, I think Barack said it only cost him like $5 in Bitcoin to get that one mined at the time. Um, price is pretty stable. But yeah, so it cost him like $5 to to like mine a 998 signature transaction. But that's very large. That's a lot of like witness data. Also, notably, you can only do that with Taproot. So this is like being able to make a transaction with that much whenever you, the place that you put signatures for a Bitcoin transaction is called the witness data. So all of that data, those 998 signatures went in the witness data. And I think I need to look, but I think each signature is either 64 bytes, probably 64 bytes. Cause that's the new taproot thing. I think they're 64 bytes now. They used to be like 71, assuming the smaller one, I don't know. I'm going to do some math. What's 64 bytes times 998? Um, 63,000 bytes. That's a lot of bytes. Um, so it's a big transaction, right? Yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah. So that's what happened. This happened in like. Yeah, but it's not just about this multi-sig. It's about the fact that LND nodes crashed. They didn't crash though. They just, the block that that transaction got put into, they couldn't parse. So they stopped parsing, they stopped advancing where they were on the chain, right? So if something were to happen on chain after that block, your node wouldn't see it because it was like stuck, unable to process a block that had this big transaction, this transaction with a lot of witness data in it, right? So I think as long as you didn't turn your node off, it was still up and kind of doing stuff, but it was like in a, a wounded state, right? Like it wasn't operating in its full capacity. It was like, there was a lot of stuff it just like wasn't able to do my understanding yeah that was really that really sucks that's a really bad like that's like in terms of like impact being like who's affected i think almost everyone who runs lnd was infected infected i mean was impacted and um they uh basically the only way to fix it is for them to patch it and send out a new copy of lnd so you have to like update your um everyone has to update their node I kind of was joking and maybe it's like sort of a taste. It's not a tasteless joke, but I was like joking. Well, I hope they have all the new features they wanted everyone to like have already in the app because everyone's going to have to update all at once. So like they're not going to have to worry about old versions of LND after this because any old version of LND like won't be working. So, I mean, as a software dev, it's kind of exciting because they can definitely deprecate stuff now because there's definitely, depending on where they are in their software cycle, like there's, definitely going to be like, everyone's going to be on this like new version of L and D now. And they know that because like, you wouldn't have a node if it was any older. So <laughs> yeah, I, I guess it was their micro and Berkeley DB moments where everyone had to update on emergency. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, it's, it sucks. It's like, it's really, it's a shitty bug because it's like one of those things where like, if you would say it, like, I don't know if anyone had like, it's like one of those bugs that's like very easy to fix because it's a parameter. Like there's just like a hard-coded number and you just have to change that hard-coded number to be bigger and all of a sudden it works again. So it's really shitty because it's not like you had like complicated software interactions that were causing problems. It's like literally just like a, a setting in the software, but it's one that in order to update that setting, everyone has to like get a new copy of the app and like upload it, if that makes sense. It wasn't something you could like go in the configuration file and change and then everyone be good again. Um, though you could write an app such that that number was configurable, but no one ever writes software that way. It just 
because of where this particular like parameter or like sort of like configuration number is anyways. So it's like, as a like software dev, dev like, yeah, that's like it. It's a, that's a frustrating kind of annoying bug where you're just like, uh, why? I don't know. Yeah, but there is um, another problem right now. Of course, my next question is going to be why were core lightning nodes not affected by this multi-sig? Yeah, that's a great question. So the multi-sig, the multi-sig transaction that went out in like mid-early October um, is valid underneath the taproot rules and is not valid under like the segwit rules, right? So like anything before taproot, that would have been invalid, but it's a taproot transaction. It uses the taproot rules. Anyone who implemented the taproot rules would process it correctly, right? So Bitcoin, so most core lightning nodes, the way that it works is we get, core lightning is very like, we like to call it like a plugin kind of architecture. So we write an interface where these are like all the things we need to be able to call from like a Bitcoin block source, as we call it. Um, and as long as, and then anyone can write a, like a new application or piece of software that as long as it can respond to all of our like questions, like, you know, we'll ask, is this transaction in the mempool or like, give me the next block kind of thing. Um, as long as your application can respond to all those questions, like anyone can write their own block source for Core Lightning. Um, the default one that we ship with works with Bitcoin D, but there's a lot of people that run other versions. And in fact, one of these custom block source like plugins that someone wrote called Trusted Coin used BTCD, which was the library that had the problem. So everyone who was running a Core Lightning node using the trusted coin block source had the same problem, like their, their stuff froze. So I was gonna say not every Core Lightning node was unaffected. Anyone who was running a block source that used the BTCD library was impacted. But most people who run Core Lightning use the Bitcoin D and Bitcoin D didn't have, Bitcoin D was able to like process all these transactions correctly. The other thing that makes Core Lightning a little bit, so like other thing that Core Lightning does very differently than I think like this BTCD package is that Core Lightning to the most part assumes that you as the person running your Lightning node picked a block source that you trust. So most people trust like Bitcoin D, right? Like if you run your own full node, you did the initial like block download from scratch, right? Your node has verified every single transaction and block that has come through your Bitcoin node any data that your Bitcoin node has is trusted data, right? Like you've, it's not trusted, but like it's you've, like your node has done the work to verify all the blocks that are on it, right? And so when Core Lightning asks it for block data, we just assume that it's done all of the correct like parsing. Like we just kind of assume that it, it it's valid data. Um, and then when we read it out, we parse it, um, I haven't looked at the exact code on how this works. I really need to, but basically the problem in BTCD, maybe this is way too much info, whatever, but basically the problem in BTCD had to do with the limit of how much like, like, so when in computer programming, one of the problems, like one of the things, one of the like work that a computer program has to do is you take like a long set of like information and you transform it into like sort of like different fields and stuff so that 
your program can like easily access data because it's got labels. It's basically like you take a bunch of like a long form of just like jumbled words and you organize it with labels so that your program then can easily access like different parts of information. Anyways, we call this like parsing. When you read data in though, um, if someone sends you like way too much information and your little program tries to read in a whole bunch of data, it's possible it'll like run out of memory and the whole program will crash, right? So there's definitely like a um, there's definitely like a crash factor on your node anytime you read data in off a wire. How much data you should read in before you can like stop reading data in is kind of like a, one of the hardest questions in like computer programming right? Is like, maybe it's like four megabytes. Maybe it's like 10 megabytes. Maybe it's like half a gigabyte of data that you read in before your program goes, nope, that's too much data. I can't handle that and falls over. Um, so this is where I like, I don't know exactly what Core Lightning does in terms of reading it in, but I think we just use kind of a default buffer size that's pretty big and we don't really worry too much if it's a block or whatever, we'll just like read it in or not because we're trusting that, and we trust that whatever data your block source send us is like valid, whatever means, whatever valid means, right? So we just kind of like read it all in and have like some generic large buffer size that we don't want to go over, but it's like not at all related to like how big the block would be, right? It's sort of like a generic buffer size, I think. Um, whereas in like BTCD, Whenever they tried to decide how big of a buffer to read in, they use numbers that are considered consensus numbers. So like, well, consensus says, so like the rules about what a SegWit block, how big a witness stack can be is like 10,000 bytes or something, right? So they decided that they would only read in 10,000 bytes. And then if they read more than that, they would throw up and say, I can't read this, right? Like it's like, I just like, it's more than I'm allowed to read in and the reason that they pick those numbers is they're like, well, that's like the limit on the protocol as of SegWit. That was a limit on the protocol. So like it should be good forever, right? Like that's like a totally normal, like it's a very reasonable thing to do as a software programmer. Um, but it runs into problems like, as we found out, Taproot changed the rules and they removed that number. They said it can be much bigger than that. But the software still had that limit from like an older, what used to be consensus. So it's like... It's like a, it's a shitty bug. Like it's shitty because it's like you think you're being smart or clever by using this number from the spec, right? You're like, oh well, I'll just like you know, like deciding how much buffer data to read in is kind of like I said, it's like very much a hard problem. You're like the e easiest way to solve this is go figure out what the biggest number is allowed ever, and you just use that, right? Um, but as we found out, the problem is that like the spec changed, and all of a sudden that assumption was no longer good, and everything started falling over for people who were using that software. So yeah, it's it's like, it's just, it's it's a mistake that like anyone could make cause you're trying to be smart, but it turns out like the real smart thing to do in terms of wire parsing is to use, to use a number that is like, I guess the size of, they changed it to be like the size of what's an allowable block, but that assumes that we're never gonna change the block size. I don't know. I need to go figure out exactly how, Core, how big Core Lightning makes its buffers so I can have like, because I think it'd be interesting, but I haven't, I just haven't gone and looked. I don't know where it is. I'd have to go find it. Um, sorry, I've talked a lot. I don't know if that tells you more information and maybe that's like way too much information, but yeah, it's um, especially a lot of information and someone actually accused Blockstream, I think it was today, of purposely looking for limitations in LND and breaking them. 
<laughs> yeah, no. So I think what happened is like, so the guy who's been published, so it's like, okay, so what exactly has been happening is someone has been building Bitcoin transactions and then getting them mined. And the existence of that transaction in a block makes problems with this like particular BTCD library, right? So there's one guy who's been figuring out how to make these big weird transactions and then figuring out how to get them mined, right? He did it the first time and it broke LND. And then he went back to the same library, found another way that he could trigger basically a very similar bug, like the same kind of bug, because there's still an existing problem in BTCD. So he built another transaction and broadcast it. And in his message, he said, I think it is, um, you will run CLN, you will be happy. Um, And so then all of a sudden, like we had people on Twitter who were like, uh blockstream what is your relationship to this like why are you breaking lnd your guys's like name like why is this guy who's doing this thing the other thing about this um you know i'm gonna call him like researcher hacker he's literally like barack is brilliant he's very smart um he's been in he has his own company called bitmatrix that like i first found out about because they were building he was building very like BitMatrix was building very complicated um, covenant style DeFi like trade contracts on Liquid. So he was like been doing Liquid research and work for years, um, and now is seems turned to making extremely weird and large taproot transactions on mainnet. Um, so there was some confusion even amongst like I I I I was like under the impression that Blockstream had invested in like Bitmatrix to do liquid stuff because like you know it would make sense that we invest in the liquid space but I was wrong about that we had not invested in Bitmatrix as I later found out um this guy is just like an independent guy who really likes being able to do covenants on liquid and liquid lets him do that in like kind of a bitcoin setting so um, yeah, but like, so the fact that Barack had like, you know, obviously Barack is like a fan of Core Lightning and likes what we're doing. Um, we're also like, you know, I think there's like maybe 5% of the entire Lightning network that we know of, like runs Core Lightning. We're like a very minor, like we're a small part of the network. We're like, we're very much like an underdog in the Lightning node space. So, you know, I think he really likes what we've built and the kind of like, level of care that we put into our software. And so I like to think he's just like a big fan of us and our team. Um, and so, you know, he's like a fan, like, you know, he's a big fan of our project and clearly like, I mean, uh, sometimes I think it's like, like there is some amount of like amusement and like bringing down um, like whoever's the top dog, whatever. Um, especially like, I don't know, it's like a similar bug to the first one. Um, so anyways, like, yeah, so he, like, he definitely, I think, antagonized the L&D, like, community by doing it again, um, and not telling anyone he was going to do it, he just did it, um, and people thought that Blockstream was somehow responsible for that, um, and so we were getting called out for funding the attacker, sponsoring the attacker, who, like, you know, published a transaction, which, um, hit a bug that LND had in it, if that makes sense. So like, yeah, I mean, I can see, I mean, I definitely was under the impression that we had invested in BitMatrix 
which Barack is a part of. So like, I can see why other people would think also like the CLN thing. I can see why people would think that we were like somehow funding this guy who was attacking like our- I'll I'll stop you here. Don't don't say anything more because it it might require lawyers. (laughs) Okay, yeah, yeah, right. That makes sense, yeah, yeah. Um, But like, you know, I think the truth is like none of us knew anything about it, like- I don't know. It's like, I don't, yeah. And then there's this whole big thing about like what you should do if you find a bug. And it seems like a lot of people are like, you should not publish. You should not take advantage. You should not like activate the bug. If you know about it, you should tell people. I think that's probably the right way to do things when you find bugs. Um, yeah. I don't know. This is like, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, I'm not sure if people are going to be happy about some of the stuff that you added, but oh. you, you're super honest and that's fine. Like <laughs> you, you did not self-incriminate just for the record, but at the oh, same great. time you made it look so dubious. Like you, people are going to ask questions right now. Like, oh, so this dubious. guy does stuff on Liquid. Okay. He's a super fan. That's suspicious. And dubious in what way, though? I guess, like, I don't know how else to, like, I don't know what, like, suspicious means exactly. Like, like, what does suspicious mean? Like... No, they would imply complicity. I think that's the right way to put it. Yeah, but what does it mean? At least it's like, but what does it mean to be, like, complicit? Like, none of us... I didn't know there was a bug in, like, no one knew that that was going to happen, if that makes sense. Like, I don't know. No, let's change the topic anyway. I wanted to ask you a little bit more about running Core Lightning on my little device. And had I run LND and not follow Twitter at all, let's say I was on vacation or something for a week. I guess I would have had all the channels for force closed or something, unless there was some malevolent actor with whom I opened channels and he could steal money from me. Yeah. So I need. I think it's useful at this point to explain to people this danger that you have in Lightning, that mm. if you don't have the latest state of your channels and you're not constantly online to synchronize with the rest of the network, there's this risk that someone can exploit by sending an older state of the channel to you and force closing and therefore taking your money. That's right. Yes. Well, so yes. How do I explain? The thing with the state is you need the latest copy and you also need to be online looking for someone to publish, not the latest state, right? So there's like two parts to it. One is that if you don't, don't have the latest state and your peer somehow finds out about that or decides to like test you. That sounds weird. Um, If you don't have the latest state and you don't have the state, like if you don't have like the ability to correct when someone publishes the wrong state, I should say, then they will like get money that they probably shouldn't have because that wasn't the current state of the channel. Um, The other thing that, what do you call it? The other, yeah. So like, if you don't have the current state, that's a problem. If you don't have any state, that's also a problem because your peer can publish any state, probably the one where they have the most money. 
pay right, no matter what the current balance is. And then they're able to get money that they shouldn't have. Other problem is if you accidentally publish an old state. So like maybe you don't know that you're behind and you accidentally publish a state that isn't like what the most up-to-date thing is based on the way the protocols currently works, your peer can like take all of your money, which is like not cool at all. Right. So there's a couple of things here. One is like, you always want to have the latest state. Um, the other is that like, if you're not watching the chain, your, your peer can attempt to publish an out of date state. And if you've gone and you're on vacation and your note is down, then they'll be able to like basically publish an older state where they had more money than they currently have and like basically get all that money that they shouldn't have. Um, there's two ways kind of, there's like, there's like three ways to fix this sort of, I don't know if fix is the right way or like maybe like avoid it. First one is never go offline and never lose your database and always be like up to date. Um, part of the way you can do that, Core Lightning has a pretty cool like um, way that you can run a second disk. And every time that the database makes an update, it'll write it out to that second disk for you. So you can use like a data database backup plugin. So you have two disks that are like independent is the idea. And they each have a replicated copy of your your database. Um, so that way, if your node ever goes down or there's corruption on one of the disks, you have that second disk that has like the perfect backup copy of your database. So that's how one way in Core Lightning that we kind of help get around that problem. Um, the other thing is, um, uh, what do you call it? The, so it's kind of like option one is like just always have like magic perfect backups or some sort of backup form such that if something goes wrong, you can like replicate back from like your your secondary desk and it'll work. Um, the second thing that you can do is use a watchtower. I think I think this helps helps for like certain cases, but a watchtower is like a third party. Ideally, it's a third party or like it's your soft, it's like a watchtower that you run, but on like a totally different computer, hopefully on like a totally different network. Um, with the idea that if something happens to your node, the watchtower won't be affected. And as your node makes updates, you send to the watchtower the latest copy of your of your channel state. So the watchtower has like this sort of anonymous, in theory, I don't I'm not really like hundred percent sure on like the privacy concerns around watchtowers, I think they're pretty good. But um, the idea is the watchtower doesn't really know, or if it's a watchtower you run, it doesn't really matter. Um, but the watchtower, if it's a third party, doesn't really know who you are or what transactions, like what channels are watching. Um, but if they see that transaction go to chain or any of those go to chain, they'll have the history and they'll be able to um, take action on your behalf if your node is offline or if it's like falling off. So that's like, so like, Number one was like back up your own stuff locally or have like a replicated database. Um, option two is use a watchtower who is like a third party who you kind of do backups with, like a third party protocol of making like backups, but it's better than a backup. Like a watchtower is not quite a backup. It's like also has, the watchtower also has that component of is like watching the chain to make sure that um, if anything goes on chain, they can react, right? So they kind of also have this, like, it's not just a backup database. It's also like a reactive component. Like they'll take action on your behalf and like save your money sort of thing. Um, and then the third option would be to, well, I don't know if this totally fixes it, but it solves some of it is to like move over to like something like L2, which totally, it's only helpful in that it like reduces the amount of data that you need. 
Um, and it makes your data back up like a lot thinner and a lot smaller. You only need to remember one thing per channel instead of right now, like a lot of things, you need a whole list of things to not lose money. So it just really reduces the total amount of data you need to keep track of. Um, yeah, so as long as you only have the last piece of information with like this new L2 protocol, or maybe there's other protocols we can move to. L2 is just the one that I know. Do I know the most about it? I don't know everything. I know the most about it, but not, I don't know a whole lot. Um, anyway, so those are kind of like three things that um, kind of like current state, ideal state with a watchtower, and then like future state, maybe with a new protocol that helps make it a little less bad for losing data. After Mt. Gox collapsed, that was really the precipice of me saying, right, this has to change. We need a totally transparent exchanging system um, and base it on gold instead of fiat. Voltoro is the hard money exchange which helps you beat inflation with instant swaps between the best stores of value known to man, gold and Bitcoin. Unlike most exchanges, Voltsoro understands the importance of transparency and security. All gold holdings are secured in top-tier Swiss private vaults and fully insured against theft, fire and more. Maximize your purchasing power today by going to voltsoro.com slash Bitcoin Takeover. This is not financial advice, but gold has been humankind's most reliable store of value in the last 6,000 years. Do your own research. Use promotion code TAKEOVER for a one-time bonus of one gram of gold for the first 50 new customers buying gold with Bitcoin. Are you concerned that your friends, neighbors or KYC exchange might know how much Bitcoin you own? It is time to take your financial privacy seriously with Wasabi Wallet, a free and open source wallet solution which makes use of mega coin joins to mix your coins with those of hundreds of other strangers. Thanks to the groundbreaking Wabi Sabi engine, your coins get divided in smaller untraceable units which grant you great anonymity for both huddling and spending. Download Wasabi Wallet 2.0 today at wasabiwallet.io and take advantage of the mega coin joins. It's free and it's open source, so don't trust Verify. What are you going to wear when Bitcoin hits $1 million? The same old $20 t-shirt? Try Maison Machi, the designer clothes made in Paris by Bitcoiners for Bitcoiners. They're not your average mass-produced sweatshop clothes. Machi will ask for your measurements and tailor every piece of clothing according to the shape of your body so you always look and feel great in your t-shirt, hoodie or dress. 
It's all made in France by real artisans who also happen to be Bitcoiners. Which is why Maison Mashi only accepts Bitcoin as payment for their clothes. Get a Maison Mashi t-shirt or hoodie today, it might even help you find a girlfriend. And once you do get a girlfriend, you can also buy her a Maison Mashi dress. Stop having fun looking poor and check out MaisonMashi.com. That's M-A-I-S-O-N-M-A-A-C-H-I.com. Right, so coming back to this node that I'm going to run once again, I have this option to choose between... Obviously, I don't want to reveal to the rest of the world my IP address and Bitcoiners are super paranoid about doxing themselves and their IP addresses, their location, everything related to that. So you want to have some sort of network level privacy against the rest of the Lightning Network. And for that, you can either run Tor, which is a very bandwidth consuming layer of obfuscation. And it's very good when it works, but it's terrible when it crashes for some reason. And it has been subject to lots of DDoS actions in the last few months. And you also get the option to run a VPN, which I guess is more reliable, is faster, but is not as private. And you need to be connected to the same server. So it subjects you to some more third party risk, I guess. So what's your experience with this? Yeah, this is a great question. So the question is like, you know, difference between Tor or VPN or like just ClearNet, which is really almost impossible to do from having a home server. So like, it's like, let me see, like the the problem, there's, there's a couple of problems here, right? Like one, I don't know about you, but like I run my node, you know, on not in a data center, right? It's like a computer that I have physical like ownership over. Um, and the reason for that is like, one, I don't want my keys for my lightning node anywhere that like anyone who's not me has like access to. Um, and then the other, so like, okay, so like you kind of start with this, like, you know, your Bitcoin node, your lightning node, you run them at home. It would be like, if you, if you were able to run it, sorry, if you were able to run it on like a server, right? Um, like a box somewhere on the internet that was like in the cloud. Um, the nice thing about that is that like the IP address for that like server, if you were able to like expose it, well, one, it's a lot easier to have an IP address on like a server in the cloud. So like when you run your node at home, you want people to be able to connect to you, right? It's really hard to connect to anyone who's on a home network. Like you don't have like a fixed IP4, V4 address. I think IPv6 is like a little different, but then you run into problems where like, and then also it's like, okay, maybe that's where your house is. Like you don't want to be putting advertising where in the world your physical location is, your IP address, right? So there's like a few things here, right? So like the ideal, one ideal way to, one way to fix that would be rent a box in the cloud, put your node on the box in the cloud. Then you run into the problem of like, well, I got to pay money every month to run it in the cloud. but And also like Lightning is hot wallet. Someone has, someone else might have access to that box. I don't even know, right? So, so people started running nodes at home and they started using Tor, right? The nice thing about Tor is it gives you like an address that you can access from anywhere. It does this really cool tunneling stuff so that, you know, no one knows where you're located in the world. Plus it like works behind any kind of network, whatever. So it sort of immediately saw 
solve like all these problems. It solved the problem of I don't understand anywhere I am, and it solved the problem of I don't know how to advertise my address behind like this home networking setup, right? So Tor is like on the surface a very perfect solution for all of the problems you might have trying to run a lightning node at like a house. Um, but then you started to run into like problems, so to speak, and that Tor is like super unreliable, right? Like this is like the big problem with running it on Tor. And I think one of the reasons, so I was talking to um, one of my coworkers at Blockstream, Warren, who's like done a lot of work. And I think it probably has like one of the best um, articles that I've seen about how to set up your node such that you can use like a VPN service and not leak your IP address. You don't have to use Tor. But Warren's whole thing that he says, at least that I think I remember him saying about Tor is like, Tor's not really meant for long running connections. So most of the time when you're like browsing a website or something, you are sending like one off requests for more data at a time. But it's kind of like you're reading or maybe you sometimes writing data, but it's a little more like, um, not like this long lived persistent connection. You're on the website for a few hours and you disconnect and come back. Um, and Tor like works fine for like these kind of like one-off messages sort of thing. Um, the idea with like um, lightning nodes, however, is that the type of connection that a lightning node has between each other are supposed to be like very long lived, right? Like you're sort of expecting every lightning node to always be up and always be available and always be able to respond to payment requests, right? And if you start getting any trouble in that connection, if you agree to make a payment, like accept an HTLC and then aren't around to like finalize it, so there's kind of like this two-step process with HTLC payments. There's like a commitment phase and then there's like a settlement sort of like phase thing that happens. Um, if you're not around to do the commit and the settle, then if you're if you're there for the commit, but then you like kind of disappear before the settle, then all of a sudden you'll your channels will start closing because that full loop has to happen within a time frame. Otherwise, you have to like force close your channel, basically. So Tor is unreliable in that Tor creates problems for lightning nodes in that you start getting these like connections that fall off at random times and don't get reestablished. And then if you've got a payment in process, it can lead to if that, that instability lasts for long enough and you're unable to get back in touch, um, it leads to this like forced closures on channels, which costs money, right? Like because you have to pay on-chain fees and stuff. So um, Tor is like an unstable and potentially has like a risk of being expensive, like has a risk of leading to forced closes in a way that um, non-Tor connections don't. So one of the downsides of running is like, right, so Tor solves these problems about like, I want my node somewhere not like at a data center and I still want to be able, and I want to tell people where, I want to be able people to be able to connect to me without me like exposing where I am exactly, right? So Tor solves those problems, but it has its own issues and that the connection, it's not really built for the kind of connections that Lightning nodes need to be, um, to kind of get rid of that risk of like falling on chain for like unresponsiveness. So. Okay, so it's like the tour thing. So you can definitely run tour. Like I said, it's got certain advantages. It's got some definite downsides. Um, and also, like you know, if everyone's running a tour node, and it means that like payments across the network might get stuck a lot more frequently because everyone's sort of in this position where their connection to their peers might not be stable. And then, so like everyone being on tour to some extent makes like the ability to make lightning payments a little less certain 
because there's always this element of like, oh, we don't know which which of these, like if everyone on the Lightning Network had channels that were over tour, some percent of them would be, I would assume, like falling over, having trouble at every time. So every time you make a payment, what's the chance you're going through a connection that's having problems at the current time would be like, you know, a certain percent. And if everyone's on tour, it's like higher than zero or higher than if everyone's unclear or not. Um, the other option is the VPN option. So the VPN option trade-offs are one, you don't have to have, you don't get the flakiness of tour, but um, you need a, like, you need a VPN basically means that your exit node is like, I'm going to call stable, right? So like on tour, the address that your traffic comes through changes, and but you still have like a stable like address or whatever. This is the tour onion routing thing. And then for, um, but for ClearNet with like a VPN, um, you kind of have to pick like a stable IP address that you're going to send to be your pick to be your VPN. And then once you have a stable like thing, it's how attached to your identity is that stable connection, right? Like, are you, so in my case, um, I am renting a box that I use to like bounce my lightning traffic through. So the IP address that I publish is like very far away from wherever my box actually is in the world. Um, but it like secretly tunnels all the data to wherever I am on the internet with my box. Um, but if someone decided they wanted to figure out who's running that node, they would just have to subpoena the company that I'm running the box from, right? So there's like, you know, it's like, what's your threat level? Like, it's like, okay, the people at this company know who I am and at least like where my billing stuff is and who I am and what my IP address is for that particular box. So anyone who has the ability to ask that company to give them information would be able to figure out who is running my node, right? I mean, aside from the fact that like, I think I've like told people what my node is, um, but like, aside from that, if I hadn't told anyone that, like, so once you, then you're running the VPN, um, like I said, then you have to like, whatever your relationship is to wherever that VPN endpoint is, um, that becomes a vector of someone being able to figure out who you are, but depends on what your threat model is. Um, but the upsides are, upsides are that um, it's not as is unstable, really. I think it's not like the only upside that might be the only upside that I can think of. Um, yeah, that was a long explanation, but. Yeah, when I had my node on for longer than a year, I think it was about a year and a half, I was very much concerned about the fact that I was not really routing transactions. It was on tour. <laughs> and at first my reaction was, okay, this just means that I'm not very well connected. So let me open more channels. And then I opened more channels with more people and I realized that it does make a difference. And I said to myself, okay, it, this means that I need larger channels. I need to have more capacity. And I opened larger channels and still there was not any kind of tangible difference. And later I found out that usually in this ranking system of nodes, you're usually de-boosted if you're on tour for the specific reason that you're usually slower and you delay payments. And that's something that I did not know and something that I want to get right the second time around. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. So second time around, what have you considered for your VPN? Like, have you... So for me, I have to actually pay money every month to rent a cloud server that I use as my like VPN front end. And I have like, a, I basically use an SSH port forwarding scripts 
to do my poor man's VPN. Um, I don't think it's what Warren recommends because you do leak your like home IP address a little bit. Um, but it's definitely like better than nothing. Um, yeah. There's services though I've heard of. I think there's like a VPN service that works. With nodes. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, I've heard some good stuff about Mulvad and also what's the other one? IVPN. I've met one of their guys in Riga and mm. he told me that it's pretty good. And what's the other one that's good? I, I think Proton is also decent. Cool. Yeah, I haven't heard of any of those, but that's cool. Those are good resources to have. Another option that I don't know how ready it is, but like have, there's like... I haven't done a lot of research into it. I just know that one of my teammates has mentioned them as maybe a possible alternative to Tor. I don't know how well they work with long-lived connections like Lightning, so kind of like putting those disclaimers out there. Um, there's this project called NIM, mm -hmm. which I think they're building like a, a network, like an anonymity networking network also. Um, I don't know if any lightning, I don't think any lightning nodes work with it yet. And it's like not really compatible the same way that Tor is with like addresses and stuff, but it's definitely like on my like sort of radar in like in terms of things that are happening in the ecosystem. Yeah, I did interview Harry Helpin and another one of their guys. And I'm super interested in them. I don't care much about their token monetization system. All I know mm -hmm. is that this is a lot more advanced than Tor. And unlike Tor, it doesn't have the exit nodes controlled by the Department of State and lots of US three-letter three agencies. So from this point of view, it's more pure. It's also VC funded, so there is some shady stuff there, but the technology itself is super useful. And if we find a good way to use it, that can be for our benefit. Yeah, that makes sense. That's really cool. Yeah. Yeah. Anyways. Yeah. But I like, depending on what you want to use your node for, if you want to be like a routing node, having, figuring out how to make the VPN work for you is probably the right move. Just like you're saying in terms of like being able to like have good routing statistics and less chance, it's like less of a chance of having channels fall to chain, which is kind of risky. Yeah, and something Monitor. else which I want to mention, and it was something that popped out when I was in Riga because Mempool Space updated their website to also include information about the Lightning Network. And they were able to do this very nice graph where they show where the nodes are hosted. And mm -hmm. about one about 2,000 Bitcoin, and this is a large chunk of the network, it's hosted on Google Cloud. And there's another, I think it's a quarter of the network hosted on Amazon. And then there's DataWeb Global, DigitalOcean, there's Alibaba, there's Comcast and lots of others. Basically, you have too much reliance on this big tech infrastructure well, that's being provided for rent. Yeah, so here's the thing though. So my node will show up like, for example, under the Google Cloud thing, but my node isn't actually hosted at Google Cloud, just like my front-end server is, right? So if Google Cloud took my like node connection data down, I'm pretty sure I would be able to put my node, I'd just have to rent a new box 
and get it set up. Even so my node wouldn't change. So even if like Google Cloud took it down, I guess I'm saying I don't you don't know how much of that money is actually that service versus how much of that money is like hiding behind that service somewhere else and just being used as like proxies, if that makes sense. Oh, yeah, it does. Um, It, I guess it's the same situation as we look at mining centralization. And sometimes we say, oh, if Bitmain does this, then look at how much of the network is controlled by Antpool and some of their other Chinese mining pool friends. But at, at the same time, I can be in Romania and mine with Antpool. So that doesn't really mean much. It just means that people use pools to mine. So I, I guess it's the same situation with Lightning here. You connect with your node via Google Cloud or Amazon for privacy or reliability purposes, but it doesn't mean that it's a single point of failure, I guess. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I, honestly, like, even if assuming that like, and I'm not sure, maybe, maybe people actually are running their nodes on it and I'm like the weird, weird minority, but I was like, but I exist. So like maybe lots of them do. Um, but the other thing I was going to say about that is like, I thought looking at the chart, like, even if uh, like Google Cloud was like, you know, like it was only like, it wasn't 50%, right? It was like a lot, but like there wasn't one particular part that had like a huge part, more than 50% of the network, right? Like I think the Google Cloud stuff was like maybe, I'm gonna say 30% or so. Um, so I thought it was pretty cool that we were pretty like spread out across all the different hoster, hosting groups. So even if like Amazon went down and was unreachable, only like, you know, 20% of the lightning capacity would be like unable to make payments, which is kind of interesting. Yeah, you know, all of this is new to me and a lot of people listening to this. So it's useful to clarify some aspects because you open the page, you look at it and you're going to jump to conclusions that it's super centralized. But this is worrying to some extent. It makes you realize that we do need to run more nodes at home. And getting back to this little guy, there was a lot of fud about the Raspberry Pi, I guess a couple of months ago, and everyone was saying you should not be using that, you should buy a laptop, or you should buy hardware that's designed to be a server, like Intel Xeon processors with sturdy motherboards that are made to be 24-7 online, and stuff like that. But this little guy lasted for like a year and a half, so that's a lot more than you get from a laptop or whatever, at least for the cost, and it's also super cost-effective, with energy prices that are rising. And that's also a concern. It's quiet. You just put it somewhere. I, I have lots of reasons to still use the Raspberry Pi. And I was curious to know, what's your take on this? I wouldn't put money on a Raspberry Pi, I think is my take. Um, but I understand that a lot of people do. Um, if you are running it on the Raspberry Pi, like I strongly recommend you get like a disk backup or figure out a way to have like two disks that you're reading and writing from. Um, I don't know. I think that they're definitely not as they're definitely not as robust as other processors are. Um, and I think that's always like a little bit of a risk in terms of running financial software. So Yeah, I understand what you're saying. And I should probably look into better hard hardware, but for my personal use. 
And most of the times I just want to make payments and connect my phone to this home node. Mm -hmm. I guess it gets the job done. If it doesn't, I mean, I, I'll, I'm going to close all the channels and look for something that's more reliable, I guess. But this second time around, I'm going to be more cautious with the way in which I open channels. And I'm also going to pay more attention to the situation with Tor and VPNs. Because I was pretty well connected, but at the same time, I was not routing because I was on Tor. And that put me in a very undesirable place. And now I'm going to learn from my past mistakes and try to do better. If I don't do better with the Raspberry Pi, it's just a sign that I need to invest in something better than this. And that's fine. It's just the second phase of my experimentation. The first time when I tried to run Lightning in 2018, I actually burned my SSD drive. I think drive is an SSD, but I, I burned my SSD trying to synchronize with Lightning. And I thought, okay, this is so exciting. This is so early that we're still in this pioneering phase where hardware gets destroyed. It's like people trying to fly with their airplanes and crashing and being like, yeah, I need a better prototype. Yeah, definitely. It's definitely like that. I'm also like wondering, so like, I know you're based in, in Europe, right? Somewhere. Um, uh, I don't like, I don't know how public you are where you are, but you're somewhere in Europe, right? Like, um, the I'm wondering, like, so in, I live in the United States, I live in Texas. I'm wondering if it's easier for, so like I can buy a, a used, like, business commercial desktop for a couple hundred bucks. And that's what I use as my lightning node. And it's got like more expensive processors that have gone through more rigorous testing, whatever. Um, the, but I'm wondering if like, but that's like, you know, if I can spend like a couple, like a hundred, 150 bucks on, you know, a lot of memory, a good processor, it's like a couple years old, but it's been, you know, it's been used successfully. Like it's, wondering though like that's almost around the cost of what it would get to get like a nice raspberry pi with like you know a nice hard drive or however that i don't know exactly what all this stuff is but i think the, the price point for me at least is about the same but i'm wondering especially given like some of my experiences in like brazil and um undergrad like other places in the world one thing that's american that you don't really appreciate is like the access to like good computer hardware for cheap prices that you have in America is not the same as like everywhere else in the world. Like in Brazil, this was like a long time ago, like a decade ago, but it was so every computer was so expensive and getting any amount of like, I didn't even know how much raspberry Pis cost in Brazil, but I would be very surprised if you have as much access to like really good quality, cheap used computers like in other places so i'm saying all this to be like maybe a raspberry pi is like actually the most like cost effective option in other places so yeah yeah i don't know yeah it makes sense i can also get for like 250 dollars a thinkpad mm -hmm. c430 intel i5 processor with 16 gigabytes of ram i think that's mm -hmm. a lot more than i need for a node and I can run some sort of Linux distro and let it run with the node 24-7. I guess I could do that. But at the same time, there's always the question, how do you know that the hardware that you're buying pre-owned is not compromised? 
because they're going to put money on it, right? Oh, I see what you mean. Yeah, that's an interesting point. I didn't really thought about it. I guess I like, you know, I installed a, a new operating system on it entirely. But if someone had done something a little like more, I'm going to say nefarious than operating system level, yeah, I probably would be at risk. Um, I don't know. I guess like, yeah, I don't know. That's a great question. I don't have a good answer to. Um, I mean, how do you know that Raspberry Pis don't have the same problem? Like now that everyone knows, like people know that Raspberry Pis are being used for like Raspberry stuff. Um, seems like that would be a much easier build process. Oh man, I'm going to like create so many people who are paranoid now. I don't mean to do that, but like, I feel like it would be easier to know that like a, like the chance of like any random Raspberry Pi being run as a lightning node, is probably higher than any random refurbished computer, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does because it's more general purpose, but I know people who use yeah. Raspberry Pis for video game consoles for emulation. They use it for home servers. They use it for, what's it called? Like the Google device that you use for your TV. Yeah, I, yeah, I know what you're talking about, yeah. So it, yeah. it has lots of use cases that have nothing to do with Bitcoin, but I, I guess yeah. it's more obvious when you want the eight gigabytes Raspberry Pi 4 that you're gonna run a Bitcoin node on it. It's definitely like easier to get access to a single source of new computing chips than it is to the aftermarket of refurbished machines, right? So, I mean, I guess it depends on where you're getting the refurbished machine from, but um, it's a lot more distributed. And I think it would be harder to do, do something to any one refurbished machine versus the Raspberry Pis. Anyways, whatever, that's totally speculative. Where do you get your chips from? How, do, how much do you trust the like manufacturing process? I don't know. I mean, there's definitely people that like, um, I feel like I've like talked to people who are like, yeah, I'm like writing a program. And these are like Bitcoin core devs. So this is like not your everyday Joe who's doing this. So like, I think it's okay. But they're like, yeah, I'm basically writing some software to run on like a, a TI-84 calculator that was manufactured before Bitcoin existed so that there's like no chance that anyone would have any sort of like malware or like rootkit or whatever that would be able to like mess with their, their, you know, private key information. Besides, I don't even think TI-83 calculators have like, um, what do you call it? I'm pretty sure that doesn't have like Wi-Fi. So like, yeah, your vector of like someone being able to like mess with your hardware stack or firmware stack or anything is like much lower. But I thought it was interesting that like people were like thinking so far as to find computers that had not been built until like before, like before Bitcoin was even a thing. So you have to like go all the way into the past to find like a pristine computer that there's like, no, there's like zero chance. it's almost like, I mean, to some extent, like that kind of like level of thinking about attack vectors feels incredibly um, like sci-fi. Like we live in the sci-fi like like um, storyline where there's like some event that happened in the world that was the invention of Bitcoin. And like every computer from there on you have to suspect might be like, you know, whatever. So you have to go back before the like event 
in time to find a machine that can like save the world or whatever anyways or just in this case like hold secret key material with like you having zero like zero worry about it being problematic I don't know okay really hope I'm not like building like a million paranoid people from like speculating on this but um yeah I'm pretty like I don't know I'm pretty chill about my stuff so mine runs on a refurbished machine that I bought a couple years ago um, hopefully we're not giving anyone ideas about, about this either. All right. Maybe we shouldn't say that. That's cool. Whatever. Um, yeah. Yeah. So uh, I, I feel like I have asked you all the selfish, selfish questions about my own node, which I'm going to start running. And at this point, I should also do the favor of talking about the conference that you're organizing in Mexico City. Yeah, let's talk about that. So I'm organizing another conference. I just did one in June in Austin. Um, my conferences are, the conferences I run are called Bitcoin Plus Plus. They're meant to be um, technical Bitcoin conferences. We really mostly do like, really mostly do workshops and like kind of longer form lectures and stuff. Um, but I'm planning one for December. It's going to be in Mexico City, December 9th, 10th, and 11th. Um, we're still getting our website up, uh, but you can follow us on Twitter at BTC plus plus um and yeah so what's going to be so cool about this conference is i work kind of on protocol stuff on lightning that has to do with building transactions um and one thing i don't really know a lot about is like on-chain privacy and like heuristics around you know who owns what bitcoin so like there's just like a whole lot I don't know about different ways of like looking at the chain and figuring out what's private and what isn't. And so um, I've invited a bunch of people who've worked on protocols um, for on-chain privacy to come and talk about the protocols that they've built and what they like about it. And I also invited some like researchers um, that work on things called like anonymity sets um, that I'm hoping are going to kind of talk about their work on that sort of um, protocol or like way of thinking about on-chain privacy. And, and yeah, I think it's gonna be really exciting. Again, it's December 9th to 11th in Mexico City. Um, I'm only selling like, I think 80 to 100 tickets. So you should get your ticket. Um, I think we're already like 10% of the way sold out. So um, yeah, it's going to be really great. I'm really excited about my speaker list and I'm hoping to get out my list of speakers really soon so people can start getting excited about the kinds of conversations we're going to have at the conference. Yes, and I hear that it's going to be a privacy-themed conference and you have managed to invite people from Wasabi, from Samurai and Joy Market, and you want to put them in a debate or something. <laughs> Yeah, and so the people from Joy Market haven't confirmed yet. Um, Wasabi and Samurai are both hoping to send some people who can talk about their project and their trade-offs. And yeah, I think that it would be really great to have all these conversations in person um, and give you, you know, so these different very popular projects opportunities to talk about the work that they've put into their protocols. Um, uh, yeah, so I'm excited. I yeah, I'm 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 really excited. I I think it'll be really good. Okay, so you're going to have a panel about privacy. I mean, on-chain privacy, but obviously there's going to be talk about second layer privacy on Lightning. Is there yeah, any some... connection between the two of them? Do you expect coin joints in the future to also open channels within the coin joints? Is that going to be part of the talks? 
it's not something we've like planned on talking about. Um, I think it's like, we're definitely going to have someone talk to talk about splicing, but like really like, and one of the reasons I'm running this conference is I'm really curious about, I'm really curious about how these like different protocols work. I think there's things we can do on lightning to maybe like add some of those heuristics or understanding to our nodes. Um, maybe that's like a big project we won't actually get into, but um, yeah, I think that's definitely a cool thing to kind of think about. Um, there is a cool project that I feel like I should mention called like Ellen Vortex that Ben the Carmen made that um, is really good. Well, it's like not really good. It's basically built to do like collaborative coin joins from Lightning Open. So yeah, it requires running a court. He's like the, the, I think there's like a central coordinator there's central coordinators on a lot of those projects. Having a central coordinator is a bit of a, um, it's not a custody risk, but I feel like it's a centralization risk. Um, if you want to stop a service from working, you take the coordinator down, it stops working. Um, I mean, you can always go to a different one, but someone has to run the coordinator. And if there's takedown risk, that's like a whole thing. Um, one of the project, projects I worked on for Lightning is like the dual funded protocol um, which lets people build transactions collaboratively with Lightning in a very decentralized way. Um, so the cool thing about the protocol is that like it makes basically essentially like pay joins, I think is probably the closest like analogy to a dual funded channel in like other payment world, um, non-Lightning payment world. Um, and the cool thing about it is that it's like, like I said, it's decentralized. So anyone who's got a Lightning node and wants to open a channel and can do it with a dual funded thing is able to build like basically collaborative transactions with anyone on lightning. And there's no like coordinator that someone could take down and would stop working basically. So I'm really excited about the dual funded slash V2 channel open like protocol. Um, working on getting it working with Claire. I've been like busy traveling, so I'm working on it very much, but very soon we should have at least two lightning implementations that can do it. And I know there's someone working on LND. So maybe at some point in the future, at least like the three, three of the four biggest lightning implementations um, would be able to use this protocol, which could make it like way more decentralized to do pay joins like, and very easy, pretty much like, like, mm, yeah, kind of like almost like, not like you don't have an option, but like it makes it like really, really easy to do this and like anyone can do it and you don't have to have a coordinator and like it's, yeah, anyways. Yeah, so got the website time. for the event, if you want to buy tickets or something, it is btcplus.dev. Yeah, but that still points to our old conference. They haven't gotten all the new information out. So if you want to find tickets for this, the Twitter account has all the right information as of right now. But hopefully it'll be up at btc++.dev like very soon. Okay. And one last question for you before I ask you how people can follow you. I think I gave you these magazines when we met in Istanbul this year. And I'm pretty sure you must have gotten something at TabConf this year. I don't think I, I wasn't in Istanbul. So I don't think I got the Istanbul one. And I will go Were look you not for, in Istanbul in February? No, I wasn't in Istanbul. Really? Yeah. Okay. Well, bad mistake. But were you at <laughs> TabConf okay. this year? 
I was a tab bump, yeah, but I don't think I picked one up. So, uh, was it not in the gig bag? I mean, I swag don't know bag, where not my gig bag. I don't know where my swag bag is. Oh, you missed it. Okay. Last yeah. year's magazine is about a hundred bucks right now, so no big deal. I really missed South End tonight. Oh man, okay. Well, this is why it's worth a hundred dollars, right? You're gonna right? find and another one at La Bitcom, but it's. I am gonna Spanish. find another one. You're right. Yeah, let's save it. Trade it for sats. I can't believe someone's tr trading that away for sats. You know, like. Well, collectibles. You know, these are NFTs. They're like physical items <laughs> that people want to collect. Yeah, real life, real life collectibles. That's cool. And yeah. Anyway, beyond this awkward moment where I thought I saw you in Istanbul, when in fact I haven't, how can people follow you? <laughs> yeah, you can find me on Twitter. I'm at NiftyNai, N-I-F-T-Y-N-E-I. -E I'm also on GitHub. If you want to follow me on GitHub, but I haven't been committing much lately. Um, I'm at NiftyNai on GitHub. Um, and then you should also check out the Core Lightning um, Twitter, C-O-R-E-L-N underscore L-N. Um, I feel like, oh, I should probably also talk about Base58, like for two seconds. That's my Bitcoin education project to teach people about the Bitcoin protocol. Um, so if you thought I explained things pretty easy to follow today, you should check out our online Udemy class where I explain how Bitcoin transactions work at the byte level. So it's very in-depth, um, but you learn all about scripts and how scripts work and find out how I know so much about scripts um, and script limits is I, I've got a lot of stuff in the class. We don't have anything taproot. I'm going to have to make a new tap class for taproot that goes into all the taproot, cool taproot stuff. But um, yeah, that's my, my base 58 plug. Oh yeah. So could you mention the website once again? For base 58? Yeah. yeah, it's base 58. So B-A-S-E, the number five, the number eight dot info, I-N-F-O. I just opened it. I'm going to take a look because it, it sounds very interesting to find find out how transactions work. I, I, for myself, have some questions about this, but since I have this resource, I'm going to read it as opposed to exhaust you with more questions. <laughs> okay. So thank you very much, Lisa. This was a very useful in interview for myself and I hope also for the people listening. And maybe I'll get you once again to ask you more questions about the Lightning Network and Base58 and conferences and whatever. Yeah, I look forward to it, Vlad. Take care. After Mount Gox collapsed, that was really the precipice of me saying, right, this has to change. We need a totally transparent exchanging system um, and base it on gold instead of fiat. Voltoro is the hard money exchange which helps you beat inflation with instant swaps between the best stores of value known to man, gold and Bitcoin. Unlike most exchanges, Voltoro understands the importance of transparency and security. All gold holdings are secured in top-tier Swiss private vaults and fully insured against theft, fire and more. Maximize your purchasing power today by going to voltoro.com slash bitcointakeover. 
This is not financial advice, but gold has been humankind's most reliable store of value in the last 6,000 years. Do your own research. Use promotion code TAKEOVER for a one-time bonus of one gram of gold for the first 50 new customers buying gold with Bitcoin. Are you concerned that your friends, neighbors or KYC exchange might know how much Bitcoin you own? It is time to take your financial privacy seriously with Wasabi Wallets, a free and open source wallet solution which makes use of mega coin joins to mix your coins with those of hundreds of other strangers. Thanks to the groundbreaking Wabi Sabi engine, your coins get divided in smaller untraceable units which grant you great anonymity for both huddling and spending. Download Wasabi Wallet 2.0 today at wasabiwallet.io and take advantage of the mega coin joins. It's free and it's open source, so don't trust Verify. What are you going to wear when Bitcoin hits $1 million? The same old $20 t-shirt? Try Maison Machi, the designer clothes made in Paris by Bitcoiners for Bitcoiners. They're not your average mass-produced sweatshop clothes. Machi will ask for your measurements and tailor every piece of clothing according to the shape of your body. So you always look and feel great in your t-shirt, hoodie or dress. It's all made in France by real artisans who also happen to be Bitcoiners. Which is why Maison Machi only accepts Bitcoin as payment for their clothes. Get a Maison Machi t-shirt or hoodie today, it might even help you find a girlfriend. And once you do get a girlfriend, you can also buy her a Maison Machi dress. Stop having fun looking poor and check out MaisonMachi.com That's M-A-I-S-O-N-M-A-A-C-H-I.com